KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the worst thing that happened to Black history during Black History Month was not Ron DeSantis banning critical concepts and approaches. It was the college board revising its new African-American studies curriculum to meet all of his demands. But now, scholars in Black history, Black studies, and related fields are fighting back. Kimberly Crenshaw will explain. Plus, Walmart is the biggest employer in America, and the Walton family, the children of Walmart founder Sam Walton, is the richest family in the world. The company has raised wages in the last several years and become more socially conscious, but it provides a case study of the limits of socially conscious capitalism. Rick Wartzman will explain. His new book on Walmart and its workers is titled Still Broke. Finally, we'll have an episode of Your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, military spending in Minnesota. It totaled $11 billion last year, even though Minnesota does not have a military base and it's not the headquarters of any major defense contractor. But it does have a company that says it can produce over 1 million rounds of small arms ammunition per day. That's on Your Minnesota Moment, coming up later in the program. But first, we need to talk about Israel and the Palestinians. Israel's new far-right government, headed again by Benjamin Netanyahu, is working to undermine democracy for Israelis and advance Israel's annexation of Palestinian land. For analysis, we turn to Sari Makdisi. He's professor of English and comparative literature at UCLA and author of, among other books, Tolerance is a Wasteland, Palestine and the Culture of Denial, published recently by the University of California Press. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, in the London Review of Books, also in The Nation. Sari Makdisi, welcome back. Thank you, pleasure to be here. Well, first let's talk about what's going on in Israel now. Uh, there's been a massive protest movement that has risen up against Netanyahu's government. It's brought over 100,000 people into the streets, fighting legislation that will fundamentally change the country's political institutions, and also opposing plans to build thousands of new settlement units in occupied territory and plans to approve the outright annexation of Palestinian land previously seized by illegal Jewish settlements. Then last week, in the midst of these unprecedented protests by Jews, Netanyahu launched an unusual daylight operation in Nablus to arrest Palestinians considered terror suspects. Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians and wounded 102 others, according to the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. This obviously was calculated to provoke a response, and there was a response. Six rockets were launched from Gaza into southern Israel, followed by Israeli airstrikes on Gaza last Thursday. And immediately the top headlines in the Israeli media shifted from the country's unprecedented internal political battle to the kind of fight it has covered many times, armed confrontation with external enemies. That's what happened last week. Now we have headlines about settler violence in Huwara, a Palestinian village on the West Bank on Sunday night. 
Tell us what happened. What happened was a very, very large mobilization of Jewish settlers from the region around Hawara. Hawara, Hawara is near Nablus, and they're both kind of surrounded by, Jew, by Jewish settlements. And what, and what happened was a, a huge uh, concentration of, of these settlers basically stormed the center of the town and set fire to cars and homes. And basically, it was a kind of pogrom. It was something like out of the 19th century in Europe. From a Palestinian point of view, the problem with these kinds of things isn't just that you have these, these people setting fire to your homes and your cars and whatnot, but also that if you lift a finger in your own self-defense, the army, which is watching over the settlers, it's there to protect the settlers, it's not there to protect you, it's there to protect the settlers. So if you do anything to, to, you know, to protect yourself, you'll, you'll be dealing not just with the settlers, but with a very organized, a very modern army that's, that's backing the settlers up. So it's like, a, it's no matter what you do, you're kind of, you're kind of damned as a Palestinian. That's, that's, and it speaks to the larger kind of, the larger complex, you know, that's at play right now. So that in your introduction, John, you were talking about a distinction kind of between between Israel and the occupied territories. From a Palestinian perspective, that distinction no longer really holds because Palestinians across both sides of the 1967 or pre-1967 you know, pre so-called Green Line that for some people distinguishes what's called Israel from what's called the occupied territories, meaning the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. As far as Palestinians are concerned, they are dis they are you know secondary or tertiary or or worse citizens or residents uh, on both sides of that both sides of that border. And the recent the recent uh, developments are kind of accentuating that. The New York Times described the attacks on Huwara as quote violence. I wonder what you think of using that term in this case. I mean, obviously it's violence, but what's interesting is that it also in the context of the attacks that have been taking place in the past few days. So, for instance, uh, as part of after the after the Israeli army raid into Nablus, you know, last week, uh, a Palestinian uh, shot and killed two Israeli settlers, and that attack was referred to by obviously by the Israeli state. That goes without saying, but also by the U.S. ambassador in there and and by you know, journalists in, in the Guardian and the New York Times and other places as terrorism. You know, so what's really striking is well, why is one form of violence referred to as terrorism and the other form of violence? referred to merely as sort of generic violence. But this is a really, really crucial question because at some level you could say both forms of violence amount to people taking the law into their own hands or taking justice into their own hands. Well, then why is one, why is one differentiated from the other? The answer is, as in so many other things in the question of Palestine, the answer has to do with race. The members of one racial group are considered just sort of ontologically to be considered terrorists and the other members of the other racial group are you know, ontologically considered to be something else so that when they engage in violence, oh, it's just violence, you know, and, and we can all wring our hands and condemn violence. But, but, you know, in the way that, you know, most people think these days in the, in the US and Europe, at least, terrorism has a kind of special, it's reserved for a special opprobrium. It's not just, it's not just violence, it's this, this particularly nasty kind of violence. You know? And of course, again, if you think about it, well, what's, what is the difference between you know, killing people is killing people at the end of the day, you know, and so, you know, why, why is one form privileged and the other one is sort of denigrated, except, except unless we look for a kind of racial explanation, which in this case, it's obvious what the racial explanation is. Netanyahu took power this time with a formal policy declaration that, quote, the Jewish people have an exclusive and unquestionable right to all areas of the land of Israel, close quote, what do they mean by the land of Israel? And what do they mean by an exclusive right? Uh, that's a great question. And something I wrote about in my piece in the nation recently. 
What they mean by the land of Israel, it's, a, it's an old Zionist phrase that means basically what we would call all of historical Palestine, which is to say, if you want to call it the state of Israel within its pre-67 borders, which of course it's never, it's never declared borders, even that's kind of an ambiguous statement. Let's say pre-67 Israel plus the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza and so forth. That's, we call it Palestine, they call it the land of Israel. What they mean by that is, is that only people who are Jewish have an exclusive right they're the only ones who have access to any kind of rights in an exclusive sense across all of that territory. If you're talking about exclusive rights, by definition, it's a zero-sum game. If this party has exclusive rights, that party doesn't have any rights at all because it's like it's, it's not you know exclusive means as to the exclusion of everybody else. We have to remember that in this in this territory as a whole, that is from the Mediterranean Sea to the to the Jordan River. There are roughly equal populations of Jewish and non-Jewish people, that is, Jewish and Palestinian people living there, more or less 50-50 in terms of population. And what that essentially formal declaration of apartheid amounts to is, a, is, is the reiteration. It's not new per se, so that it's more explicit now than it has been in, in previous years, to say only Jews have rights here and Palestinians have no rights. I mean, that is as close as you can get to a formal declaration of apartheid as is possible to imagine. It's been done, and as I, I mean, there are other ways to think about that. There are precedents for it, too, in a law passed in 2018 called the Jewish Nation State Law, which formalized some of the same principles. I mean, this is not like a brand new thing. Um, and it's been, it's been there all along in the sense that this has always been an apartheid state. This is becoming more and more explicitly and, and de jure rather than merely de facto a, a, an apartheid state. Liberal defenders of Israel argue that Israel was founded as a democratic and secular state, but the 1967 war and the occupation of Palestinian territories fundamentally changed Israel, turning it into an occupier with all the violence and injustice that occupation requires. This is a view that you're challenging. Yes, of course, because from the very beginning, from the moment of its foundation as a state, it has is, it is juridically institutionally, juridically, legally discriminated, differentiated between Jews and non-Jews in terms of citizens within the territory of the state itself. When the Israelis took over the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem after, in 1967, that became much more obvious, much more easy to see, so that somebody like President Carter could say in his famous book from 2006, there's an, he, he said, for example, Carter said specifically, there's a system of apartheid in the occupied territories, but not in pre-67 Israel, which is completely incorrect. Like, for example, the most fundamental level, the way in which the state understands and identifies its own citizens within its pre-67 delineations, a Jewish citizen is, dis is distinguished from a, from, a, from a Palestinian citizen, both citizens of the state, because only the Jewish citizen has access to what the state identifies as national rights. The Jew is identified as a national, right? And it's something that is very, very, it's very clear in how the language of the state, the infrastructure of the state, the state works. Only Jews have access to national rights in, inside the state. Palestinian citizens, they may be citizens, but because they're not nationals, they don't have access to those kinds of rights. And therefore they're discriminated against, like from the, literally from the get-go. From the, from the moment of their, of their arrival into the state's population registry, there's a distinction that takes place that gives some people access and, and withholds rights from other people. And that's, that's been the case since the, since the state's nationality law, which only applies to Jews, was passed in 1950, the law of return. It's not new, in other words. It is, it's a state that has always discriminated between Jews and non-Jews. There's nothing new there. 
1967 and the occupation made made it much more, as I said, much more obvious, much more naked, so that liberals could disavow what was happening in the occupied territories, in the post-67 occupied territories. But as you say, John, going back to what seemed to them to be the good Israel of pre-67, where everybody seemed to be equal, they were never equal. There was always, this was always a system based on, first of all, mass expulsions of a population, ethnic cleansing, home demolition, destruction, restriction of rights. And, and as I said, the juridical, legal, institutional distinction between in their language, Jew and non-Jew, which goes, it's in, it's in the Supreme Court has, there's the Israeli Supreme Court has, has, has ratified this, laws have ratified it. There's nothing, nothing original here. It's, this has been going on since 1948, essentially. So now we get to the question of the role of the United States, which of course is the key to maintaining uh, Israeli power. Um, there have been some moves towards criticizing America's unquestioning support for Israel from liberal Jews in Congress. Notably, Bernie Sanders said two weeks ago that he would, he hinted that he would introduce new legislation linking U.S. aid to Israel to their treatment of Palestinians. He said, quote, we've got to put some strings attached to that aid he said, you cannot run a racist government, close quote. Kind of a lone voice in terms of conditioning aid on Israeli policy and Israeli conduct. But I wonder what you think about that. I mean, you know, good for him, but, you know, the, he's one senator out of out of 100, right? So the, the fact that he's saying it doesn't mean anything by itself. It's, it's sort of, it's a gesture, in other words, saying, oh, we should do this. Yeah, well, we should. But that's not the point. The point is we've been giving aid to this what has always been a racist country from from the beginning for 70, 70 plus years at this point. So yes, of course, we should not just restrict aid, we should stop aid altogether. And of course, I mean, this is the other key, you're, you're making a, a very powerful point here, John, the US has the holds the keys to this entire situation, the Israelis could not do what they do, without American without basically the ongoing open, you know, blank check from the US meaning not just the financial aid that the Israelis get, but also the constant cover in the UN Security Council. People don't, you know, people don't really stop to think about this. The US has used its its veto power in the Security Council in the UN. I can't remember exactly how many times, but I know that most of the times the US has used its veto power, it's to protect Israel. By the way, but if you back up until into the 1970s, for example, 1970s and 1980s, the US was very active using its veto power in the Security Council to protect then apartheid South Africa. So the U.S. clearly has a soft spot for apartheid regimes. But anyway, that's those are the contexts in which it's used its veto power. So that's much more powerful in some sense than just giving it money. You know, the Israelis don't need money per se. It's this constant political support, no matter what it does, no matter how it flouts international law, no matter how it, it laughs at American you know, legislation, no matter how it abuses American citizens when they get there, because they're subject to all kinds of maltreatment. The U.S. just keeps turning over and turning over and just saying, you know, here's some more. Maybe the U.S. will wring its hands or whatever. But until something actually happens, nothing's going to change. That's why in some really fundamental way, so much of this conflict is being waged, not just on the ground there, but also in the main, in the culture, in the, in the various sort of cultural settings and academic settings and journalistic settings in the U.S. itself, which is why we see this massive turn in, in our time to the suppression of voices critical of of Israeli legal of the Israeli legal system of Israeli apartheid of the Israeli occupation and so forth because the you know they recognize how important the US public sphere is to the maintenance of support this ongoing open-ended support for the Israeli state project uh, last thing 
the Daily Brief of Haaretz on Tuesday said we are, quote, on the eve of another intifada. I wonder if you think that's right. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I, can't, I couldn't tell you that. But I mean, it's, it's very clear. Again, nothing new here. It's very clear that the Israeli tactic is again and again and again and again to carry out raids and attacks and shoot people and torture people and do all kinds of things in order to get a response. And then they get the response they're looking for. And then, you know, it's like, then they're, they're sort of like, they've proved why they need to do what they do, you know, obviously in their terms. We hear about when something happens, like in Hawara, we hear about Nablus, we hear about the raid in, in Jericho, we hear about things like that because they're kind of semi-large scale, five people, six people, 10 people, 11 people killed. What we don't hear about in the day-to-day -day press, but people can find it in the UN, in the, in the, in the weekly or bi-weekly briefings of, for example, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in the Occupied Territories. They have a website that has bi-weekly briefings. And you can see I mean, literally every two weeks, if you go through the statistics, you know, the, a recent one, which I, I actually referred to in my, in my recent Nation article, 200 raids into the West Bank in a two-week period or three-week period, shooting or, or killing or injuring, you know, several hundred Palestinians on a regular basis, arrests and detentions and tearing down, demolishing people's homes and ripping up their olive, olive orchards and this kind of thing. This goes on day in and day out and day in and day out. Every single day, this, these forms of violence take place at a quotidian level. And they, they, you know, it's only when we see these larger scale outbursts that suddenly it grabs it in new, you know, headlines in the US or in Europe, but it's happening on a daily basis. And of course, none of that background noise that the occupation registers in, 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 in media awareness in the US and in Europe. It's when something big happens and then it's sort of, oh, here we are with a cycle of violence again. No, it's not a cycle of violence. It's a situation of apartheid and occupation, and it's been like that for more than 70 years. Sorry, Mark DC. You can read his piece, Israel is Destroying the Fantasies of Liberal Zionism, at thenation.com. Sorry, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Black History Month has just ended. Usually it's a celebration, but this February we had the biggest attack ever on black history. Now historians and other black studies scholars are fighting back. For comment and analysis, we turn to Kimberly Crenshaw. She teaches law at Columbia and UCLA. She created the concept of intersectionality, which is now banned in Florida and by the college board. And she's probably the most prominent figure associated with critical race theory. That's what the New Yorker says. It's also banned in Florida. And she co-founded the African American Policy Forum, now one of the country's leading social justice think tanks. Everybody wants to talk to her these days, the New York Times, MSNBC, the Washington Post. So it's a special pleasure to say, Kim Crenshaw, welcome back. So happy to be back, John. Thanks for having me. Well, your work, along with Michelle Alexander, Alice Walker, Robin Kelly, and Bell Hooks, 
has been targeted by Ron DeSantis and his allies in Florida, but that wasn't the worst part of Black History Month. The worst part came when the college board went along with everything Ron DeSantis wanted to eliminate from the new advanced placement curriculum in African American studies. In fact, intersectionality is at the top of the list of Florida's official concerns, as they call them, the ideas they want banned. Originally, the College Board denied that politics had played any part in their dropping intersectionality from the curriculum. But recently, a College Board spokesperson offered a very different explanation of what happened. He said that intersectionality had been deleted because the term had been, quote, compromised by disingenuous voices and was thus no longer, in his words, effective because it had been, quote, drained of its meaning and filled up with political rhetoric, close quote. What's your response to the statement that attacks from the right on intersectionality have left the concept drained of meaning? My own response and those of thousands of people who use these ideas was, well, drained of meaning by whom and and for whom. It certainly still has meaning to me. (laughs) I write about uh, intersectional issues all the time. I organize around intersectional uh, needs uh, all the time. And so do people all over the world. So effectively, what the College Board seemed to be saying is that because some people have issues with intersectionality, some people people have decided that they want to attack it, um, that therefore uh, it no longer is a viable, legitimate uh, topic for classroom instruction. And that's basically just turning over to the right wing, the capacity for them to decide what kind of concepts uh, can be legitimately taught and what kind can. And I I just can't see us taking that without uh, response. The idea of intersectionality is not really anything new. It arose in the late 80s when some of our friends were debating whether race or class was more important. You suggested that gender was important too, and that efforts to rank these forces was a big mistake and that the real task was to uncover how structures of subordination interact, for example, for black women. That was actually real intellectual progress. And it came out of activism. It came out of black feminism that has been part of our culture, you know, for over a century. And it came out of legal constraints on the ability of Black women to actually be seen as legitimate subjects of the law. So I was a Black feminist thinking about and writing about how Black women in the law were often erased by the idea that either you are a racialized subject making arguments against institutions for discriminating against you on the basis of race, or you were a gendered subject making similar arguments against institutions for discrimination on on the basis of gender, but you could never be both at the same time. And my experience told me otherwise. So it was clear (laughs) that the law was a structure that was doing a certain kind of harm. It was erasing 
the fact of our social lives, it was removing from us uh, the kinds of remedies that should otherwise have been made available to people who experience discrimination. So my sense was that the law was telling us something about the consequences of singular categorical ideas about causality, singular ideas about discrimination and exclusion. So intersectionality was really a a remedial concept. It was grounded in a Black feminist sensibility directed to the ways that law was actually reinforcing our marginalization rather than interrupting it. It started with cases around Black women, but it didn't end there. Intersectionality is now practiced and, and thought about and used all over the world, you know, from Brazil uh, to India to South Africa to France, there are all sorts of projects in which people are using this lens to better understand uh, the circumstances of people who are multiply marginalized to better transform the conditions of their lives. So the that famous Florida chart says <laughs> that intersectionality, quote, ranks people based on their race, wealth, gender, and sexual orientation. I guess they got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it never ceases to amaze me uh, how absolutely uninformed our critics can be and still command attention and from from some uh even some degree of respect or at least well they have a point they have no point <laughs> because they don't care and they pretty much said it many many times it doesn't really matter what intersectionality is or isn't what matters is that we can use uh, this idea, we can use critical race theory, we can use 1619 to galvanize white grievance and encourage them to lose faith in some of the most important public institutions we have. And education is among the most important functions of society and one of the most important sites for democratic uh, experimentation. That's where we learn who we are. That's where the values of a democracy are inculcated. That is why education is such a threat to the aspirations of people like Ron DeSantis and others who are willing to undermine our democracy in order to win and protect power. Some of our friends are saying that this attack on critical race theory really is irrelevant because CRT is not really taught in high school, which is where the College Board AP course is taught. What do you say to those people? I say that the belief that we can handle this issue by pivoting away from what they are really trying to do uh, has been a mistake. And that mistake is what has led us to this moment when they went beyond trying to uh, demonize critical race theory to attack African-American studies as having no educational value. And uh, if folks have been following Florida, they will know that just last week, uh, legislation was introduced to eliminate gender studies 
critical race theory, intersectionality, or any sub-majors that engage in those ideas. And that will not be the last thing that they will do. They said, we're going after the entire apparatus of social justice. We're going after public education. We're going after the strongholds uh, where people learn about equity and about inclusion and about democracy and about our history and about our aspirations to continuously make our country better. They want the country that we came from. And the only way they can get that is by erasing this knowledge, by attacking public education, and by making people think that their grievances rest with us, mm -hmm. as opposed to grievances resting with a society that in many ways is, is going off the rails. Since the College Board bowed to the attacks on African American studies, uh, more than a thousand scholars in Black studies and affiliated fields have released a series of four demands in a letter to the College Board. You can find these at the uh, website of the African American Policy Forum, aapf.org. I want to just look at some of the highlights here. Of course, the first one is to restore the critical concepts and scholarship and frameworks to the AP African American Studies course. And then there's one, actually, I wouldn't have thought of, provide the resources to create new platforms, including online, so that students in Florida and elsewhere who have censored content in their schools can take the real uh, African-American studies course and sit for the AP exam. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so the real problem um, that the College Board is trying to sort through is the fact that there are now many states, I call them the anti-woke states or, you know, the Confederate curtain states um, that have uh, passed legislation that they are using to preclude students from learning about things like structural racism or implicit bias or uh, being exposed to contemporary movements uh, against uh, police brutality. So in those states, Florida being one, the argument is that these courses cannot be taught because they violate state law. So there are a couple of choices. One is to uh, basically gut the course of much of its contemporary content in order to have the courses taught there. Um, I call that the Jim Crow approach. We're talking about a billion dollar uh, organizations. Surely they can find ways of working around these local bands to give students access to this material and allow them to take these uh, tests with the full exposure to the education rather than settling for a truncated and frankly racist one. Another way to resist the efforts of states below the Mason-Dixon line to limit what students can read about, think about, and learn was a project you launched called the Freedom Readers Band Book Clubs. Tell us about that. Well, John, you know, we were uh, aware of the fact that a lot of people were not aware that the banning of books included books that they had grown up reading, included books by Pulitzer Prize winners like you know, Toni Morrison, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, 
uh, so many other classic texts were now being banned, many because of the way that they made uh, certain students feel. Um, There's a book written by Ruby Bridges, which talks about her experience being a Black girl integrating New Orleans schools. And this is a book that has turned up on the banned books list. So we thought it was important for communities to understand, number one, that this effort to ban books is banning the stories of us. It's banning classics. It's banning new ideas. It's banning our ability to actually talk about our experience. So we thought that was important. We also knew it was important for people to understand that the states that were doing a lot of this book banning, like Florida, are also states that are trying to limit the political power uh, of racially marginalized people. The two are pretty much hand in hand. So we went on a uh, 14-state tour uh, from Minnesota to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, uh, on the Freedom Riders to Freedom Readers Unbanned Book Tour, (laughs) passing out 3,000 books, 19 titles, including the 1619 Project and Critical Race Theory as, as as well as The Hate You Give. So many of these books have been banned. And the point was for people to understand when we lose our power to influence what our education is, our voices are then going to be erased. And so that's what we've done. And we still are are keeping um, the banned books clubs uh, going. We pass out books to young people, to family events. If folks want to learn more about our banned book uh, club, they can check it out on our website at www.aapf.org. And one more uh, notable effort in response to the effort to keep Black Studies books out of the uh, classrooms the publisher, The New Press, has published several of the banned books, including uh, your critical race theory reader. The New Press created something called the Teach Banned History Initiative in partnership with the Zinn Education Project. Teachers in states where book bans are in place, and this now includes Arkansas, Idaho, Iowa, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia, in addition to Florida, teachers in those states can request free copies of the forbidden books published by the New Press sent to their home address. The New Press has reported receiving requests from hundreds of teachers in just the first week of the initiative. They say our goal is for young people to engage in intellectual inquiry, to pursue real questions about history, and to apply historical insights to contemporary issues, close quote. You can get more info about this project at thenewpress.com. Last thoughts here. You told the New York Times recently, the slide to authoritarianism is real. This is how it happens. When we allow for people like DeSantis to allow for some ideas to be suppressed, we allow for our democracy to be undermined. No one can afford not to be involved in the resistance against the banning of books, the banning of ideas, and the banning of entire fields of study. And John, people can join this fight by signing a petition that people have been 
uh, sharing all over the world. Uh, they can find a link to it on our website. It basically is saying we're drawing the line uh, in the sand here. We are not going to tolerate the marginalization, the exclusion uh, of, of Black women, of Black feminism, of intersectionality, of Black queer studies. These are tools that have come out of the history of African-Americans that are tools that we use all over the world. We're part of this tapestry and any effort to suppress ideas in one place will definitely uh, travel to other places. So if folks want to see that petition, join in, lift their voices, uh, they're welcome to do so. And that's at the African-American Policy Forum, aapf.org. Kim, thank you for all your work. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the limits of a socially conscious capitalism. For that, we turn to Rick Wartzman. He's written for Fortune, Time, Business Week, and especially Fast Company. He's the author of several books, most recently, Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Rick Wartzman, welcome back. Hey, great to be with you. Well, Walmart is the largest employer in the world, the largest private employer other than government. The Walton family, the children of the founder, Sam Walton, is the richest family in the world with an estimated wealth, Google tells me, of $224 billion. For decades, we complained about Walmart's low pay and terrible employment practices. Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a memorable chapter about Walmart in her classic book, Nickel and Dimed, about how bad it was to work there. That book came out in 2001. But since then, Walmart has changed. First of all, remind us how bad Walmart was 20 years ago. Yeah, so uh, awful. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, the most vilified employer in the country. Um, and and I think in in many ways, rightfully so. You know, this was a company that had always had this model of delivering you know goods to people, some high quality goods, but at low prices. But there was a high, always been a high human cost that comes with those low prices. And although consumers benefit every time they push a cart down to the Walmart checkout line, uh, they save money on their goods. And Walmart, I should say, has always seen that as part of their social mission, right? To provide affordable goods to, to folks who otherwise wouldn't have them. Again, high human cost to that. So whether it was driving manufacturing overseas, constantly chasing labor and uh, expenses to the lowest cost country one after another, uh, certainly changing the face of many communities by you know pushing mom and pop main street businesses out. And then, of course, in terms of how uh, it paid its own workers, it has always paid low wages, as do many, and in fact, most retailers um, and, and many other industries. Folks really have always had a hard time getting by on a Walmart paycheck. Yeah, let me just add a personal story here. My mother's family ran a men's clothing store in Superior, Wisconsin. For a hundred years, everybody in the older generation worked at the store at some point in their lives. 
And uh, when they were getting ready for their 100th anniversary celebration in 1999, Walmart opened a store in Superior, Wisconsin, killed all of downtown. All the stores went broke, including my mother's family store. My mother suddenly lost a big part of her income and became poor. So to save money, she started shopping at Walmart. Wow. Walmart killed a thousand other downtowns and small Midwestern cities. Tower Avenue in Superior, Wisconsin was one of them. That really changed America. It really did. And look, I, you know, in some ways we, I think, romanticize what the jobs were like at those small businesses. And there is actually a lot of evidence that even companies like Walmart pay better and provide better benefits than a lot of those very small family-owned businesses, unless you are a member of the family. You know, I'm not sure that those workers were making you know, much, if anything, above minimum wage themselves. But certainly aesthetically, in terms of the character of downtowns and, and places like Superior, Walmart changed things, along with other big box retailers. Uh, markedly. The other thing to add is back in 2005, 2006, 2007, you know, Walmart was vilified, you know, a lot because of its actions, but also because two unions, uh, the Food and Commercial Workers and the Service Employees International Union, the SEIU, really went after Walmart. And Walmart, as the biggest company in America, the biggest employer in America, really became the poster child for them of everything that was wrong with corporate America, paying workers not enough to live on, uh, folks who didn't have adequate health care benefits and were turning to public assistance, Medicaid or food stamps to scrape by. Walmart became the target of two really immense union campaigns, public campaigns, um, and that also really hurt their reputation. I know in your book, you quote Barack Obama campaigning for president in 2008 saying, I know I won't shop there. Yeah, I, right. He was not going to step foot in Walmart. That's right. And then and then Walmart changed. And so did their relationship to Obama. Yes. So yeah, what really happened and what my book details is the changes that Walmart has made uh, starting in 2015 and uh, continuing on through the present. And it is the backstory of how they came to make this change. Um, all the pressure that we just talked about, the union campaigns, other labor activists, this group, our Walmart, now United for Respect, I suspect some of your listeners are uh, know about. They put a lot of heat on the company over time. Politicians like Bernie Sanders, the interfaith community, right? The nuns are always after Walmart. Journalists like myself, a lot of pressure to change and business operation reasons, which we can talk about. So starting in 2015, Walmart began to raise wages. Earlier than that, under the previous CEO, uh, Lee Scott, they began to uh, make changes around inv their environmental practices. They became a greener company, a more sustainable company. Far from perfect, but widely seen now in the eyes of many mainstream environmental organizations as a real corporate leader in that area. They began to give away billions of pounds of food to food banks. They lowered the price of prescription drugs. They became a more socially conscious company. And then again, in 2015, they actually, the last piece to sort of come into place was actually doing something about wages and investing in their workers. A new CEO, Doug McMillan, who's the current CEO, came in uh, in 2014, and and they began to actually take steps in that area as well. And so, you know, the subtitle of my book that says a remarkable transformation, not not composed casually. 
I want to talk a little more about why Walmart changed. You've talked about the public campaigns by the unions, by the nuns, by Bernie Sanders. There was also some personal campaigning by individuals connected to some of the Walmart family. There were, well, there were folks on the board. There were internal change agents that the company uh, brought in, including some, you know, longtime Democratic operatives um, like Leslie Dock, others uh, who had been either in the Clinton administration or, or part of, you know, Clinton campaign, and then eventually folks who came in uh, from the Obama administration and the Democratic aisles of, uh, on the Hill. And so, yeah, this was a company that I think, you know, in many ways really did set out not just for PR reasons, but for all kinds of reasons to to really change and invest in its workers in new ways. A lot of this was a business imperative. They had cut labor costs so deeply that their turnover was so high. Somebody told me it was up to 200 uh, percent. There's a there's an anecdote in the book where a top executive goes in to a store and, you know, she was told by the manager, the turnover was 400%, right? So every worker you see, you know, you know, there, there are four others who've been in that job, you know, over the course of a year, just incredible. And you really can't run a business well. And they weren't. Shelves were empty. They were having trouble keeping just things in stock. They floor, the floor was dirty. The bathrooms were unkempt and they were losing customers as a result. Um, Sales were declining. And so, you know, Doug McMillan knew he had to invest in in the workforce in ways that they never had before. However, one thing did not change, and that was their relationship to unions. Yes, they have always been virulently anti-union. Um, and yes, to the point, frankly, that the food and commercial workers, I think, has largely given up even trying to organize Walmart, you know, even today, while Amazon, their their efforts to organize Amazon, their efforts to organize Starbucks and, and many others, right? It was certainly a, an aggressive year for, for unions and organized labor, uh, you know, in 2022. And, and we've seen all kinds of activity accelerate. You know, Walmart, I think, remains, frankly, beyond the, the reach. It's just, it's too big. It's been too too big a mountain to, to climb. So Walmart did increase wages, mm-hmm. but the title of your book is Still Broke. Tell us about that all the positive things that they did started to get them attention and and in good ways right from a company that had been so vilified so barack obama for example you know he visited a walmart while he was president he visited a store in mountain view california to tout the company's environmental sustainability practices and frame his own energy policy michelle obama um who had also you know sort of spoken out against walmart you know she uh, ended up touting the company for um stocking foods with less fat, sugar, and salt on their shelves and and helping with her Healthy America campaign. And so the company really did turn a corner in many ways. And the president, President Obama, called when they began to raise wages in 2015 to praise Doug McMillan. He called from Air Force One. And uh, again, there was a real uh, relationship between the White House, the Obama White House, and the company at that point. The bottom line is, The average Walmart worker still makes less than $29,000 a year. In 2015, when they began to raise wages, at the time, the starting wage was seven, six, the average starting wage was $7.65 an hour, barely above the federal minimum wage. And to their credit, they raised their starting wage to a minimum of $9 and then $10 in two steps. It's now to $12. Their average wage is up over $17 an hour. So all, you know, very, very 
positive in terms of the direction they push. They've invested in training. They're providing better benefits. They're moving more to full-time workers and fewer part-timers, all to the good. But at the end of the day, again, the average Walmart worker still makes less than $29,000 a year. All too many remain on food stamps and Medicaid to scrape by. And so what this has told me, John, is that this is a company that, again, is, has really had a remarkable transformation in the context of their own history of, the, of, of being in a, in a you know, low-wage model. They have pushed, they have pushed, they've made these changes, and yet their workers are still broke. In many ways, for a company that I believe does care and wants to fix this, it's still broken, and our society is broken. And what this showed me is that corporate America on its own will never move far enough or fast enough. They're boxed in. They can't do it. We've dug the hole too deep. The only way to fix this is, I think, a government-mandated solution. You've emphasized that the unions have not made any progress with Walmart. I think partly that's because Walmart operates in so many anti-union states. And so the only way to really reach most Walmart employees is with a higher federal minimum wage. Remind us what the federal minimum wage is right now. It's $7.25 an hour, and, it, and it's been that way since 2009. What's your estimate of what a living wage for workers at Walmart and everywhere else would be? Right. So in my book, I, I have a very full-throated cry for a $20 an hour federally mandated living wage. That is a family living wage. Um, it's actually calculated by um, a wonderful organization that spun out of Oxfam America called Living Wage for Us. It's based on real data analysis and what it takes to, to provide for a family, the average size, the typical size working family in this country. And what they find is that, and the reason I picked $20 an hour, 80% of Americans live in a county where the family living wage is $20 an hour or higher. Then I want to switch a little to Walmart today, after the pandemic, after the rise of Amazon. Uh, how how big a threat is Amazon to Walmart today and in the future? Uh, you know, I, I don't think Walmart's about to topple over from from anybody, even another Goliath like like Amazon. But it's fair to say that there is, I think, no decision that Walmart makes, no strategic move. Um, big policy change without Amazon hovering over its shoulder as it as it makes those decisions, and probably vice versa, right? These are the two Goliaths slugging it out um, in the retail space. Um, and interestingly, interestingly, right, each is kind of moving into each other's turf. So, right, you see Walmart has over the years, obviously, Walmart.com has become you know much bigger, and they are doing much more online. But Amazon at the same time is moving right a bit more, whether it's its purchase of Whole Foods or others, you know, steps it's made is moving more into brick and mortar um, after wiping out so much brick and mortar. <laughs> and they're both playing in the same space in terms of expanding into health services, financial services and other things. I know you've been reporting on Walmart for something like 20 years Going back time. to the LA Times, I think it was in 2003. Of course, you've done a lot of other things in the last 20 <laughs> years too, but what's it been like to follow this one story for such a long time? Yeah, I was the business editor of the LA Times. My team, give them all the credit. They, they, And I had a hand in shaping it, but they did the work to want a Pulitzer Prize for looking at 
those high human costs of low prices at Walmart. Um, back in 2004, the, we won the Pulitzer for national reporting. And since then, yes, I followed the company closely. But that's why I, I knew something was going on inside. You know, as they began to raise wages uh, and make these changes, it's a story I really wanted to tell. And the institute where I have been working, the Drucker Institute, we actually got some philanthropic funding for a lifelong learning and workforce development project. And lo and behold, Walmart was one of the early funders and, and an important funder to us. I was really shocked at first. We got the funding. I thought, man, maybe they're trying to buy me off or something like that. <laughs> yes. um, but it didn't matter. It gave me a new window inside the company. I met some you know, executives and I said, hey, look, who better to tell your story of the transformation that you've made than a longtime critic like me? But if I do so, I'm going to need open access and I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm going to talk to the unions. I'm going to talk to United for Respect and your critics. And then I'm going to come to my own truth. And, and that truth is still broke, the book that, that you have there. And if people want to know more about this, tell us a little more about United for Respect and where we can find out about them. Yeah, you should, you should uh, look them up, run by a wonderful woman named Andrea Dillendorf, longtime labor activist. Again, they, they spun out of the Food and Commercial Workers Union as uh, our Walmart was the group. And what made it a little different, they really, it's not, so first of all, they're not a union. They're not trying to collectively bargain against Walmart, but they have been a way for um, workers to organize themselves and uh, exercise their collective voice uh, against the company, demanding higher wages, improved benefits, and so on. They still have a very strong presence in terms of, uh, you know, pushing against the company. Um, and interestingly, they've now, United for Respect, has expanded well beyond Walmart to actually take on Amazon. Uh, they were very involved taking on Toys R Us as it was going through bankruptcy um, and other low-paying retailers. Um, so it's it's become a, an organization that now extends well beyond workers just at Walmart. Rick Wartzman, his new book is Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Rick, thanks for talking with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Minnesota does not have a military base. It's not the headquarters of any major defense contractor. Nevertheless, the Pentagon spent $11 billion in Minnesota last year, buying a wide variety of goods from businesses in the state, from small arms and ammunition to parts for jet fighters, to generators, office supplies, and portable toilets. $3 billion of Pentagon spending goes to a company called BAE Systems in Minneapolis. They produce small arms and ammunition there. Their website says BAE Systems can produce over 1 million rounds of small arms ammunition per day. Alliant Tech Systems is another. They're a subsidiary of Northrop Grumman, and they have a factory in the Minneapolis suburb of Plymouth. 
They have $1.5 billion of Defense Department contracts to make small arms, explosives, ammunition, and aircraft parts. Honeywell, a famous Minnesota company, provides computers and high-tech services to the military. 3M had about $25 million in Department of Defense contracts, and that was not for scotch tape. It was for material for headsets, microphones, and speakers. The Pentagon also spends millions of dollars each year on research and development at the University of Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic, and other colleges and research facilities in the state. Our thanks to Min Post for this story. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music